in that vein, just by way of reminder, I want to emphasize a couple things this morning as we are continuing looking at the doctrine of God in our confession, the chapter 2 of our confession. Um, the confession, remember, is not intended to be an exhaustive resource of everything that is about God and our doctrine and all that. It's meant to say what we can say to guard us from saying things we should not say. It's intended to guard the intentional mystery that God has left. We know Deuteronomy 29.29 is very helpful when it says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of the law. And so we don't want to... We don't want to chalk things up to mystery that are not mysterious because the Lord has revealed things that are intended to be for us. And we will be weaker as a result if we chalk things up to mystery that are not mystery. But then we go into error if we say things that are mystery we have figured out. And so we want to be careful. And the the whole goal of the confession is to be careful. We, we, our heads spin because of all these very precise words that we don't use in normal conversation. But those words are very intentional because we're intending to be as precise as we can be to guard ourselves from saying things that aren't true and to try and say things that are true. And we're talking about, a, again, a being who's high and lifted up, different from us. And so it's very difficult. Um, and again with that just to reemphasize our God is incomprehensible what we've affirmed for a few weeks in a row we're not going to totally and fully understand him it's not his intention that we fully understand him it is his intention that we understand what he's revealed and that's what we're intending to do so when we're looking at the Trinity we'll begin by reading the paragraph Chapter 2, paragraph 3. Our outline will not follow the semicolons as tightly as we have been, but we'll talk about that after we read it. So, chapter 2, paragraph 3 of the Confession. In this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences. The Father, the Word, or Son, and Holy Spirit, of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit, proceeding from the Father and the Son, all infinite, without beginning, therefore but one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being, but distinguished by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations. Which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence on Him. So to be, the outline that was given, and I'm going to follow, given by Sam Waldron, the paragraph we can talk about of the Divine Trinity, we see its affirmation, its explanation, and its relevance. And under its affirmation, we can see the unity of the three persons and then the distinction of the three persons. 
So, looking at the affirmation of the Trinity, in this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences, the Father, the Word or Son, and the Holy Spirit, of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit is proceeding from the Father and the Son. So, to begin, if we wanted to look at God as one infinite being, where would we look in Scripture? The Shema. Yeah, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6.4. Behold. Oh, I'm going to misquote it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. I can do it better in Hebrew, but that's more just rote memory than <laughs> actual understanding of the Hebrew, I think. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Here we have the absolute monotheism that is affirmed by Scriptures in multiple places. Where else might we go? Genesis, and I'm thinking like 1, Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. And this is a great place. A lot of what we're talking about today, especially with the Trinity, it's not necessarily that we have a proof text for everything that's asserted in this passage, but it's more that as we reflect on Scripture as a whole, and we continue to reflect on the implications of what's in Scripture, these are the inescapable conclusions. And Genesis 1 is a great place to go and reflect on this. Um, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, we know from continuing revelation that we can say more here than perhaps the original audience might have been able to say. And Caleb texted me a few weeks ago, there's a really beautiful verse in Psalm 33 that uh, puts a finer point on what we're talking about here. Psalm 33, verse 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their hosts. If we were to ask, Well, what can we say about the Word of the Lord? It's more than communication from God, right? Perhaps we get New Testament definition to what the Word of God is. What would that be? Jesus Christ, John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And all things that were made were made through the Word. And so with New Testament eyes, we read this verse, oh, by the word of the Lord, by Jesus, the heavens were made. Well, what about the breath of his mouth? In both Hebrew and Greek, it's interesting. Both languages are very similar in their treatment of the word for spirit. Uh, Pneuma in Greek and, uh, yeah, ruach. I shouldn't have gone there before I remembered what the word was. Ruach, yes. Both words have in their, their semantic range breath, wind, spirit. All of those words are contained, all those definitions are contained in this word. When we think of the breath of God, we're thinking of the spirit of God. 
And so when we look at Psalm 33, verse 6, by Jesus Christ, the heavens were made. By the Holy Spirit, all their host. And we can see this just further expounded upon. Of course, we see the Word more expounded upon in John 1.1. 1, 1. So, yes, as we reflect upon all that Scripture says, if all three of these persons are Creator, that has radical implications for what goes on. But there's a couple more verses I want to touch on for one infinite being. They're both in Isaiah. And Isaiah 42... Verse 8, I think, is a really great verse to have in mind when we talk about Trinity. Isaiah 42, verse 8, says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. So when we're talking about God, we're talking about a singular being who shares his glory with no others. That's going to have pretty radical implications when we consider the Godhead. But for now, we'll pause there, flip the page, Isaiah 43.10, which also has very radical implications for the Trinity. Isaiah 43.10 says, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. Only one God. None before, none after. And so when we consider the one being of God, these verses are very helpful in helping us understand the strength of that statement. How much we are emphasizing. There is one God. No others. God shares His glory with no others. There are no gods before Him or after Him. This, the confession talks about three subsistences in this one being. Now, we spent a time a couple weeks ago explaining, you know, R.C. Sproul, God does not exist. And we talked about how the reason we say that is because that prefix ex means out of or from and when we speak of this, we're talking about God standing like if he has feet in two pools, you know, being and becoming. God doesn't have a foot in becoming. God doesn't become anything. He's only being, and so he doesn't... I'm, I'm really summarizing. I hope this isn't just too much. But uh, he's not from anything. And when we exist, when you go to the Latin, it stands out. X out uh, ist, stand. So we've got a different word here. We've got subsist. And so, as opposed to exist, standing out of the pool of being, instead we're affirming three subsistences. <laughs> Sub meaning under. Right? Subway, under the way. Submarine, under the water. These are three that stand under the one being of God. Now, can I picture that? No, I can't. <laughs> but again, this language is meant to guard us from saying things that we should not say. And that's why we're, so, we're trying to be so precise in our language. 
These are three that stand under the one being of God. And that's what that language subsistence is trying to get at. And I think a great verse for this is in the Great Commission. Just seeing how they are all three put together, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one who will share his glory with no one. Yet we have three that you're baptizing in the name of. The confession goes on to assert there are three subsistences, one substance. This language is just trying to say that which makes God, God. There's only one of that. There's not three of that. Only one thing and three that stand under that one thing. So, I know. <laughs> um, when we look at one substance... Colossians 1.19 is a wonderful verse to see what said of Christ says, for in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God. Which means everything that makes God God is in Jesus. There's nothing that makes God God that is outside of Jesus. Right? The same is true of the Father. The same is true of the Holy Spirit. And again, we're getting away from partialism. The idea that, well, Jesus is great, but we need the Father and the Holy Spirit before we can really commune with God. Before we can act like we're speaking to God. But no, the fullness of God is in all three. Individually. If we can even talk that way. The Holy Spirit is all of God. The Father is all of God. The Son is all of God. John 5.26 is a really fascinating verse because it says, For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And what I want to pick on right now, we talked about last week, contingent knowledge, right? In paragraph, or chapter, or paragraph 2. Chapter 2. <laughs> Contingent knowledge, as if God is depending on things outside of Himself to have knowledge. And we're saying, we're denying that. There's nothing outside of God that He, there's no outside information He needs to fill out His knowledge. Same is true of life. There's nothing that has life intrinsically outside of God. We assume this of the Father, rightly. But here it's said of the Son as well. That the Son has life in Himself. Which means that life is intrinsic to the Son. And it's interesting because now you have two beings explicitly, or two persons, explicitly, that have life in themselves. And then you flip the page to John 6, 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So you have the Father who has life in himself. You have the Son who has life in himself. And now you have the Spirit is the one who gives life, which means he has life in himself. So you have three beings, three persons, for whom life is intrinsic. 
just, we can talk about of one power, but I want to go to of one eternity. Again, I think going to Genesis 1 is really helpful and reflecting upon the implications of that. All three are in the beginning. All three are agents of creation. You have to have eternality if there are all three there in the beginning and all three agents of creation. Also, Hebrews. Hebrews 9.14. Very helpful for us for multiple reasons. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God? Now this is important for multiple reasons. One, it's saying that Christ offered Himself by the power of the Spirit. But for now, I just want to pick on that word, the eternal Spirit. The eternality of the Spirit is affirmed explicitly here. And then, a few pages over, Hebrews 13.8, probably more well-known to all of us, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The eternality of the Son being affirmed explicitly. So, I want to go to John 14. And if you don't know, if you're talking to anybody about the Holy Spirit, John 14, 15, 16, these are the best passages to go to to get an understanding of who the Holy Spirit is. We're being taught by God about God. <laughs> and the Spirit's talked about explicitly in these chapters. But I want to focus, just think and look for things that speak to the Trinity as we read. I'm going to read a little bit of John 14. So, starting in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Which should be striking immediately. For the, for the God who says, I will share my glory with no other. It says, believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have not... Would, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You like, for anybody except Christ to say this is blasphemy, Right? Nobody can say this except God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, which is another staggering statement. Like sometimes these verses become so familiar to us, we don't, we don't recognize. Like the, the Jews weren't stupid when they picked up stones to stone him. They recognized that this is either true or blasphemy. Like <laughs> these aren't idle words. That we can just, you know, you know whatever. Because if Jesus isn't telling the truth, then he's blaspheming. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. You see the Son of God in flesh, you've seen the Father. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long that you will still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? 
Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. The Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Then we go on. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now, just pause and notice, Jesus declared he is the the way, the truth, and the life. He's declared that he's going to leave and another is going to come, and this one that's going to come is the spirit of truth. There's an equality. Jesus is the truth. He's going away and sending the spirit of truth. We'll stop there in our reading of John 14, but I just want, want you to see there, there's so much language that if we were just to pause and meditate on this, there's no way we can explain how all these pieces fit together outside of classical theism, which we've been looking at the last couple weeks, what, we un- what the church has understood about the Trinity for, well, now thousands of years. So, I'll keep going for now. Um, the, the, the paragraph goes on to, to make distinctions between the three persons. And we're very careful to distinguish between the three persons in one way. And people like to use the word uh, relations of origin as a way of distinguishing between the persons. Now, origin can be a bit deceptive because we're not saying that there was a time before any of them came into being. But it's more of, like, we don't know how else to, <laughs> to describe what's going on. So, we see that the Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. There's no language that treats the Father this way. But the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. Now where do we get, where does this language come from? Where do we get this idea? Proverbs 8, sure. And um, you get the concept there, but I was thinking more of the the literal word, begotten. Like, you do get that. um, The the issue is most of your modern Bibles won't have the word begotten in them. But we do have it, and you probably have that language in your mind because the King James has it. And it has it in multiple locations, especially in John. If you're still in John, we can turn back to John 1. John 1, verse 14. The ESV says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And for reference, the NASB 1995 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, we saw his glory, glory is of the only begotten from the Father, 
full of grace and truth. Translators got the idea that the Greek word, monogenes, if you care, <laughs> um, they got the idea that this has more to do with being unique, hence the ESV only son, rather than having an idea of generation, which the word begotten has. The idea that there's some, some we can speak this way, fromness that's implied in the word begotten. You see this in John 1.18. Um, in the NASB 1995, it says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. John 3.16. You, know, you probably know it because of the language of the King James. His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so... What we're trying to affirm with the word begotten, what we're not saying is that the Father is greater than the Son. We're not saying that the Father gave part of his essence to produce a Son, not to get graphic, but that's how we beget. The Father gives part of himself, it's taken away from him, and it produces someone else. This is not the way it works in the Godhead. Father loses nothing of himself in this begottenness. And we're also saying that, we're not saying that there was a time when the son was not. As in this begotten, God didn't have a son, now he has a son. Uh, Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And if we think of all that is being categorized by either creator or creature, what we're saying is Father, Son, and Spirit are on the creator side. Everything else is on the creature side. So what do we mean when I'm saying this morning that the word begotten is a good word, one that we should keep, that does help us? We're saying in some sense, <laughs> in a mysterious sense, the Son is from the Father. There is a fromness if we want to play with our language. But it's eternal, with no beginning and no end. And I think we see this most clearly in John 5:26, which we've already been. We've already been there. John 5:26, "For as the Father has life in himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in himself." Life is intrinsic to the Father. Life is intrinsic to the Son. Life is intrinsic to the Holy Spirit. Yet in some sense, the life is from the Father. I don't know what that means. But the way we distinguish between the Father and the Son is that the Father is not begotten. The Son is. The Holy Spirit 
is the one who proceeds from the Father and the Son. Where do we get that idea? Also in John. Good. Yes. And that's, that, that is worth pointing out. Some of this we get from the very names of the Godhead themselves. Father, Son. Father from the Son. Spirit, breath, spiration. Breath comes from, well, in this case, Father and Son. Both breathe. <laughs> so you get the idea, even there, these distinctions of origin. But from Scripture, where do we get the idea that the Spirit is sent from the Father and the Son? Again, John 14, 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. The Father gives the helper. Uh, 14, 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance all that I have said to you. So now we have given in Christ's name. John 15, 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So now, the, now Christ is sending the Spirit. Also from the Father, John 16, 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And so, this is to say, the main way we distinguish between the members of the Godhead is these ways. And it can get tricksy to distinguish them in any other way. And possibly unhelpful. Father, unbegotten, not proceeding. The Son, begotten, not proceeding. The Spirit, proceeding from the Father and the Son. I better pause here just for a moment. Is there anything that... Yes. 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 And I do want to, in this same vein, I want to look at John 17 and make this connection for us. So, Isaiah is really helpful to compare with John. As we just did it with 4310. And what we just read in comparing 42.8 where the Lord says, I will share my glory with no other. Then compare this with John 17 where Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So comparing this with Isaiah 42.8, we have some pretty radical things to consider. 
God will share His glory with no one. Here is one speaking to the Father saying, Restore to me the glory I had with you before the foundation of the earth. And again, outside of the Trinity, there is no way to account for this. The the conclusions the church has drawn in Trinitarian doctrine are the only way to be faithful with everything we see in the Scriptures. Any other way of viewing God is going to turn out to distort certain parts of Scripture and therefore distort our view of God. So the explanation of the Holy Trinity. Oh, I have more left than I thought I did. I'm like, is this the third section? No, it's the second section. Um, yeah. We'll see where we get. The explanation of the Holy Trinity. All infinite, without beginning, therefore but one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being, but distinguished by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations. Now, a lot of this is what we were just talking about. The distinguishment comes in those relations. But maybe we'll end on this question and trying to figure this trying to explain this the best we can because we're not going to figure it out in the way that we totally understand it. But we made such a big deal about divine simplicity a few weeks ago. And the idea that, well, in the, in the, as far as the attributes of God, they are indistinguishable in the essence of God. They're just related to us in ways that we can understand and so they're related in love and, and uh, justice, mercy, things that seem different to us but in God are not different. So we're trying to say there's nothing distinguishable in God. And then we come to the Trinity and say there are real distinctions between the members of the Godhead. How can God be simple? And to ask it differently, how can there be no division? How can there be no parts yet there are real distinctions. And the answer that we get, again, we're going to very precise language that I can't picture. (laughs) When he said, draw me a picture of this, I can't. But the language is that when we talk about the simplicity of God, we're talking about God in his essence, God in his godness. What makes God God is simple. And that the three members of the Godhead are standing under that, subsistent. They subsist. In other words, the distinctions are in the persons, not in divinity. So, the distinctives are are between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father again, is fully God. The Son is fully God. The Spirit is fully God. God is not more than the Father. God is not more than the Son. God is not more than the Holy Spirit. Yet, we can distinguish between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I just go down this rabbit trail to say, we're not denying anything we previously said. 
People for thousands of years have been writing on this and thinking on this. That's the best I got <laughs> in explaining that. And we are right up on the end, edge of mystery, I think, when we get into this. Is that what you're Right. Right. Something. Yes. Yes. And I think everything you've talked about, brother, where it's with eternity. Yes. We don't know how to think of something that doesn't have a succession. Right. It doesn't exist in a succession of time. Right. We don't know immutability. Something that doesn't change, everything changes eternally. Right. Yes. And this is why we're so careful with our language, even if we don't comprehend it fully. Um, for example, when we say God is one in three, we are not alleging a contradiction, right? Because we're not saying that um, God is one in the same way that he is three. So all of this language is meant to avoid any true contradiction. Because God is, like, he's, I want to say ultra-rational. Feels wrong for some reason, but <laughs> I'm going to stick with it for now. Um, God is not a, like a Alice in Wonderland kind of God, you know, makes contradictions. He's a God that makes things according to his nature, which is truth. And so, there are no contradictions in him. So he's one in a different sense than he is three. And when we talk about simplicity, that's dealing with who God is while also allowing for distinctions among the persons. I think we got to stop there. So, if you have questions, we can talk after. So, yeah, go ahead. Quick application of uh, going through these things is so important to be careful to interpret scripture. Yes. 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 And just. And I'll let Caleb decide if he wants to expand upon this or not, but just to try and bring application, that's what the last part is. The application is not like many people want to make the Trinity uh, something that we base our society off of, like the equality in the Trinity implies that we should have a Marxist society, things like that. The Trinity is different from us. And the real relevance of the Trinity, when we look at which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence on him, the real relevance of the Trinity is that this is our God. And when we reflect on our God, if Jesus is not God, we're in our sins. There's no atonement. If the Spirit is not God, then Christ has left us as orphans. 
He hasn't sent a helper. But if Christ is God, then we are saved in him. And if the Spirit is God, then he has not left us as orphans and is with us until the end of the age. So, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to study more of who you are and what you've done. I pray that you'd help us in our foolishness. Help us as we grasp to understand the things that are revealed to us and to leave alone the things that are mysterious that you have left to yourself. Lord, we pray that you'd help us in Jesus' name. Amen.